Fellowship Podcast. This week, Lead Pastor Daryl Anderson takes us to Ephesians 2. Why should we embrace grace? What is it about grace that would compel us to embrace it? Ephesians 2 tells us. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.com. Today, the word grace has a, a variety of connotations. When somebody uses the word grace, they could be speaking about a prayer before a meal. Hey, let's say grace. Could be social behavior. We need to be sure we have, we have good social graces. Uh, they could be talking about beauty of movement. That boy, she is so full of grace. She's very graceful. In the church and as believers, we talk a lot about grace and rightly so. But the biblical definition is different than any of those. The biblical definition of grace is simply favor. It comes from a Greek word charis, which is gift. So grace simply means favor. But theologians, as they do, they kind of expound on that definition. And here's some expansions. Robert Girdlestone says grace is the unmerited operation of God in the heart of man effected through the agency of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's God working in our heart through his spirit. James Dunn says that grace is never merely an attitude or disposition of God. Consistently, it denotes something much more dynamic, the holy, generous act of God. In other words, about grace, we could say that grace is an attribute of God, it's the attitude of God, and it's the activity of God. It's an attribute of God. In other words, he is full of grace. He is gracious. It's the attitude of God toward us. He, he looks at us with grace. But then it's the activity of God in us that he is being gracious to us. We could say it this way. God looks on us with favor. Therefore, he treats us with favor. Knowing that, what's our response to grace? It should be to embrace grace. That's what I want to talk about this morning. Embrace grace grace. We're in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. We're continuing this look through the book of Ephesians. And remember this first part of Ephesians is, is very doctrinal. A lot of theological concepts that we'll walk through. The last part's a little more practical. Uh, some life application things that we'll get to. Let's pick it up here in chapter 2 verse 1. Paul says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We talk about embrace grace this morning. The word embrace simply means to cuddle. It means to squeeze. 
uh, it has a sense of importance and intensity to it. As all of you know, football season is in full swing. It's back in the groove. Some of you are shouting hallelujah. You're so excited. You can't wait till this weekend. You love football. Some of you are saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's football season again. Depends what your perspective is. But if you watch much football, you'll notice how those that carry the football, they'll carry it different ways. Whether it's a receiver, whether it's a running back, maybe it's a punt returner, you'll see them carry the ball a different way. Sometimes you see them carrying the ball really loosely like this with one hand. They're running, they're juking and they're jiving and doing all this stuff. It looks really cool, but with the ball out here, it's really easy for somebody to knock it out. Sometimes they'll hold the ball a little more securely and they may tuck it in a little bit or they may kind of tuck it in here like this and so they'll run it a little more secure. You can still, though, knock it out. That's why you'll see a lot of those trying to tackle the guy with the ball instead of just tackling them. They're trying to pull the ball out, too. At times, though, you'll see the ball carrier cuddle the, the football like this. I mean, they are totally embracing it. Usually, if it's maybe trying to, the goal line stand, they're trying to get over the goal line, maybe a first down, maybe they're running out the clock. Basically, what they're doing, they're not trying to gain a lot of yards this way. What they're saying is, you're not taking the football away from me. Now, when grace is concerned, we can tend to, to handle grace the same way. There are some people who handle grace like this. They don't really understand the importance of grace. They don't understand the value of grace. They take grace for granted. They don't think about grace very often. There are others who handle grace a little more securely they think about it a little bit more, but it's still a little bit loose in their spirit. But then there are those that, man, they hold grace tight. They understand the importance of grace. They understand the value of grace. They try to walk in grace. They try to live in grace. They understand what their condition is without grace. So when we talk about embrace grace this morning, this is the picture and the image I want in your mind. Embracing grace is holding it tightly, understanding the value, saying, I'm not going to let anybody or anything take grace away. So as we move forward, here's what I want to share with you. Three reasons why we should embrace grace. And then three implications of that. In other words, three reasons why... And then if we do and when we do, here are some life implications that are going to result because of that. So here's reason number one, why we embrace grace, because grace is all-encompassing. If you look there in verse five, it said that he made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. This is kind of a common theme in Ephesians. We, we see in verse one where it says, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. The reality is apart from Christ... We are dead in sin. We are dead in our sin. We are dead because of our sin, if you will. So what grace does is grace brings us life. How does grace bring us life? Well, it's by removing that which causes death, which is sin. So when grace removes sin, it then produces life in us. And the only way we can experience full life is by getting rid of everything that causes death. I use this illustration a lot, but it's such a good word picture here. The hand sanitizers, you know, it says on the, the, the bottle, it kills 99.9% .9 of germs. That's great news, except it still leaves 
0.1% of germs and you never know if that 0.1% is gonna be the germ that gets me. God, when he removed sin, he didn't remove 99.9% of our sin. He removed 100% of our sin. He totally removes because any, any death left, any sin left is going to limit life, but he made us fully alive. Several years ago, I preached a sermon entitled Crombies. That was a word I made up. It's not a real word. I combined two words and it stood for Christian zombies. And this was back in the day when zombie and zombie apocalypse and walking dead, all that was just really big. And my point in that sermon was God didn't create crombies. He doesn't want us to be crombies. We're not fully alive, but we're not fully dead. We're somewhere in between. God did not create us as crombies. He has completely removed that which has caused death and now we are fully alive and that's what this passage is saying. Because of grace, it's so encompassing that it's removed everything that creates death and now because of Christ, we are made fully alive. When I talk with people periodically uh, that come to me, something's going on in their life, a lot of times the issue revolves around this question. They may ask it differently but it comes down to, can God forgive X? Something in their past they just can't get over. Maybe they're involved in something presently that they know is wrong. So can, can God forgive X? Every time I say yes, because it doesn't matter what X equals, unless it's the sin against the spirit not receiving Christ as savior. Every sin God forgives because it's all encompassing. Here's the principle. If grace is not adequate for every sin, then grace isn't adequate for any sin. But praise the Lord, grace is adequate for every single sin. So maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling with this concept of sin. Maybe there's something in your past you're, you're having a hard time just getting rid of. Maybe there's something now and you're thinking, oh God, how can I really serve you and how can you love me in the midst of what I'm doing? Here's the deal with sin. Here's how you deal with sin. Admit it, quit it, and forget it. It's that simple. Admit it, quit it, and forget it. You admit it, you confess it before the Lord and say, I agree with you that this was sin against you and I'm sorry. Then you quit it. Repentance simply means I'm going one way and I'm gonna quit going that way and now I'm gonna go the other way. That's not the way I wanna live. And then forget it because God's forgiven it because grace is all encompassing. Secondly, here's a second reason we should embrace grace because grace is empowering you look in verse six, it says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. This is another thing. Back in chapter one, verse 20, we see where Christ, that God seated Christ up in the heavenly realms. Now we're seated with him. Now I'll be honest, I'm still, still sorting through what that means. I have no idea what that means. But when I think about the fact that we're seated with him, obviously he's speaking metaphorically, but if we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, I don't know what that means, but it's, it's gotta be amazing. It's gotta be really cool. It's something we ought to shout about. But one thing I do know what it's talking about is the concept of power, reigning with power. The reality is that grace has released my shackles and set me free. And grace has removed my blinders so I can see. It has empowered me. 1 Corinthians 15.10, 
Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Well, what's Paul? Well, he's an apostle of Christ. He's an apostle of the church. But what was Paul? He was a persecutor of the church. So how did Paul move from being a persecutor of the church who hated Christ to being an apostle of the church in love with Christ? It was through grace. Grace was the power that completely and radically changed his life and his perspective. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, the, the verse actually says, my grace is sufficient. Many of you know this passage well. It's in the context where Paul um, is suffering from a thorn. We don't know exactly what that thorn is, but there's, it was something that was so devastating in his life and so burdensome in his life that he prayed over and over for God to remove it. God chose not to remove that thorn, but instead he said, my grace is sufficient. What does that mean? It means my grace is powerful enough to sustain you in everything you're going through. And that's the truth for all of us this morning. Doesn't matter what your burden is. Doesn't matter what you're going through. Doesn't matter what the issue is. Doesn't matter what the struggle is. God's grace is so powerful that it will sustain you and strengthen you and gird you in the midst of that, that you can endure anything that goes on in your life. Grace is empowering. Here's the third reason we embrace grace is because it's incomparable or incomparable, however you want to say that. Verse seven talks about the incomparable riches of his grace. Chapter one, verse 19, if you remember, we talked about the incomparably great power that he gives us. In verse 21, we talked about Jesus being far above all rule and power and dominion and authority, talking about that he is incomparable. There's no comparison between him and Jesus. So now we're talking about the riches of his grace having that same dynamic of being incomparable. Now this, this is really hyperbole. It's, a, it's an exaggeration to make a point. What's the point he's trying to make? There's nothing like grace. It's all about grace. Some of you may remember this, um, when Vince Lombardi went to the Green Bay Packers to, to coach, I think it was 1961, he starts with this famous um, foundational speech to the team. He ended up talking, you know, took him out on the football field and talked about here's the out of bounds and just all the fundamentals and the basics, but he started that whole thing with, gentlemen, this is a football, which sounds kind of lame to football players, but what he's trying to get in their mind is it's all about football. It's all about the football. And here's the essence of the game of football. It's all about the football. Without the football, you don't have anything. You can't score without the football unless you tackle somebody in his own end zone with the football. But then it's still about the football. In fact, if you don't have a football, you can't even play the game. You just have, have a bunch of big men hitting each other and throwing each other on the ground. And that's weird. So it's all about the football. <laughs> That's the way it is with grace. It's all about grace. There's no life without grace. There's no power without grace. There's no eternity without grace. There's no hope without grace. There's no change without grace. It's all about grace. In fact, Ephesians 1, 7 says it's through grace that we are forgiven of our sins. Titus 3, 7 says, through grace, we are justified before God. 
Romans 11.6 says, through grace, we are accepted by God. So it's incomparable. Grace is incomparable. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. One, it's inexhaustible. There's another great word picture that I love to use. It's the picture of, of, of having a pitcher that you're pouring into a glass and the pitcher is bigger than the glass. So you begin to pour the water out of the pitcher into the glass. And when the glass fills up, instead of stopping pouring, you just continue to pour and you just kind of overflows and overflows. This is the picture of grace, that God has all this riches of grace, this eternal riches of grace that he continues to pour. And we're the cup. And, and even though we may get filled up with grace, he just continues to pour his grace and continues to pour his grace. It never runs out. First Timothy 1.14 says, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Again, that's hyperbole, an exaggeration. Abundantly simply means beyond comparison. It's just, it just continues to flow, continues to flow, and continues to flow. Second Thessalonians 2.16 says that God, by his grace, gives us eternal encouragement. How can grace give us eternal encouragement? Because grace is eternal. It's inexhaustible. God never runs out of grace and he never stops giving us grace. But it's also incomparable because it's so undeserved. That's what verse eight's talking about here. It's a gift of God. It's the gift of God. Now we know gift's not earned, it's not deserved. A gift is what? It's just given freely. I give a gift to someone that I love, that I cherish, that I wanna bless, and I just give them a gift. And that's the word picture here with God. He loves us, he's chosen us, he values us, and he gives us this free gift called grace. It can't be earned. In fact, the passage says it's not by works at all. In Galatians, um, there's something going on in the church there in Galatia. And so Paul's writing them. And what's going on is there are some Jews who before they gave their life to Christ, they were trying to be justified by the law. They were living by the law. And so they felt like righteousness was through observing the law. Well, when they came to Christ and they received Christ, now they're living by grace and they understand the grace of God and the grace of Christ. And so now they're walking in grace, no longer trusting the law for their righteousness. Somewhere along the way, some Judaizers, some other people came along and said, hey, the Jesus thing is cool, but if you wanna be right with God, you still have to observe the law. You still gain your righteousness through the law. And so some of these believers began to kind of shift over here a little bit back to the law. And in that context, Galatians 5, 4 says that you're trying to be justified by law and you have fallen away from grace. Now, some people read that passage, you've fallen away from grace and they say, oh, that's a proof text for you can lose your salvation. That's not what this is talking about at all. What it's talking about is you were walking in grace. You valued grace. You were embracing grace. But all of a sudden, because some guys came, now you're holding grace very loosely and you're going back to the law and going back to the law, you're now holding grace very loosely. What that is telling us is we hold grace very loosely when we think we can be justified by our works. When we try to validate ourselves by our own goodness and our own works, we're holding grace 
very loosely. That doesn't mean we're about to lose our salvation. What that means is we're, we're not understanding what grace is all about. When we don't forgive ourselves, when we can't forgive ourselves from what God's already forgiven us of, we're, we're holding grace very loosely. And what that does, instead of being able to, to walk in the security and the solidarity of grace, now we're back in this works mentality all of a sudden again, trying to earn God's favor and work for God's love. And that, that is a dead end. So Paul's saying, man, embrace grace. Hold on to grace. Why? Because it's all-encompassing, it's empowering, and it's incomparable. With that in mind, here are three implications. How does that apply to us now? What does that mean? Okay, I, I want to embrace grace. What's the result of that? What happens when I do that? That's what I want to look at. Three, three implications. First is we remember our pre-grace condition. When we truly embrace grace and we walk in grace and we live in grace, we, we will remember that pre-grace condition and it does some things in our life. What was our pre-grace condition? Well, verse one says we were lifeless. We were dead in our sin. Verse two says we were powerless. We followed what? The ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Verse three says, we follow the desires and thoughts of our flesh and our sinful nature. We were powerless against those forces. Verse three ends, says we're hopeless. We were objects of God's wrath. We were gonna suffer God's wrath. So our pre-grace condition, we're lifeless, we're powerless, and we're hopeless. But praise the Lord, because of grace, when he gives us grace, now he fills us with his love and his life and his power, and now we have hope. But because we can remember that, it does a couple of things. One, it creates in us an attitude of gratitude. When we remember where we were before grace, before Christ, before what he did, and we can remember we were so lifeless and powerless and hopeless, we remember that. Now we're able to walk in this side of our salvation full of gratitude saying, God, thank you now for life and power and hope. But it does something else very interesting. Or it should do something else very interesting. It should create a passion for those that are still in the pre-grace condition. The reality is there are still so many people in our world. People you work with. People that you live in a neighborhood with. People you meet randomly. Maybe people that you're children are in athletics or school or music with, people that we come in contact with, so many people are still in a pre-grace condition. They're still lifeless, they're still powerless, and they are still hopeless. Now they may not look like that on the outside, their public persona may not display that, but in their heart and in their spirit, they are still lifeless and powerless and hopeless, and they're still living without the redemption of Christ. It's funny, how sometimes, I don't know if you ever do this or not. It's funny how at times when we see people without Christ living like people without Christ, we get mad. We look at them with disdain or anger or hatred or how could you do that? How could you live like that? How can you talk like that? How can you live like that? Well, why do they? Because they don't know Christ. They're still in a pre-grace condition. 
And if we're over here in this works mentality thinking, oh, I'm so good, I'm so great, look what I'm doing for God, we don't have passion for them because we think we're so much better than them. But if we're walking in grace, we understand the pre-grace condition. We ought to love them. Why? Because we were just like them. Look at verse two. We used to live like that. Verse three, all of us among them were like that at one time. The only difference between a saved person and a lost person is grace. A saved person has responded yes to grace and a lost person hasn't yet. Christians aren't better, they're not smarter, they're not more holy, they're not godlier. They've just said yes to grace. Now when you come to Christ, there is the sanctification and he changes, all that happens, that's a different topic. But there's no difference in the two. Believers aren't any better than non-believers. Those with Christ are no better than those without Christ. We just said yes to grace. And when we embrace grace, we understand that. We understand where they still are. And it should create a passion and a love for us to go into their world and connect with them and say, hey, I know something. I know someone that will give you life and power and hope. And it's Jesus Christ, free gift of grace. But here's a second implication. It should remove barriers. Look in verse 11. It says, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, through grace. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Here's what was going on back when Paul writes this. You had Jews and you had Gentiles. A Gentile was anybody that wasn't a Jew. And Jews didn't like Gentiles and Gentiles didn't like Jews. You had God-fearers and you had these pagans, some that were out of worshipers and they just did not connect. And Paul, there was a barrier that Paul calls a wall of hostility. It wasn't just a wall that separates, it was a wall of hostility. Now in the church in Ephesus, Jews and Gentiles both come to Christ. So both Jews and Gentiles are in the Ephesian church and they're doing church together. They both love Christ, but they still have evidently, because Paul's addressing this in the book, there's still evidently some, some antagonism, some hatred, some issues taking place between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. So Paul is trying to write, write here and say, hey, because of grace, you're all the same. Because of grace, the two have become one and grace removes that wall of hostility and that barrier between the two of y'all. Which causes me to ask a question. Do we have any walls of hostility toward other people in our life? Toward any groups of people? In one of our houses that we've lived here in Amarillo, uh, we had a neighbor that moved in right next door and they just, in just a matter of months, they just began to trash out the house. They never watered, they wouldn't mow. I mean, weeds and stuff was, you know, get as high as the knee. There were a couple of times I even mowed it. It was a single lady with some kids that I mowed it for. Um, 
it kind of looked kind of like a salvage yard. I mean, she just, just stuff piled in everywhere. And so it was just became, I mean, just a, a, just a trash heap, just to be honest with you. Well, Denise and I had the thought, we're just going to build a fence. We're just going to take it from our backyard and just build that fence between us all the way to the sidewalk so we don't have to see that. We never did. And I'm glad we didn't because what we said is we don't want to create a division between this lady we want to minister to her and love her, and we don't want to separate this deal. So we never did that. We continued to build a relationship, and it caused me to think, how many times do we do that spiritually? Maybe not physically, but in our spirit, we build this fence so that we can separate ourselves from the hurting people, from the needy people, from the unlovable people, from the messy people, and we can just kind of create this wall and live in our own little section. Grace doesn't let us do that. Grace, embracing grace, causes us to remove those walls and it builds bridges instead so that we can love and minister rather than isolate and separate. Here's the third implication. Grace reciprocates if we truly embrace grace, there will be in our spirit this mentality of reciprocation. In classic Greek, in, in ancient Greece, Paul would have known about this most likely. A system came to fruition called the reciprocity system. It's hard to say. The reciprocity system. Talk about reciprocation. It used this word grace in Greek, charis, and so theologians kind of picked up on it and kind of became known as, as, as grace. But it was reciprocity system. And the way the system worked, it was a time delay exchange. So someone would do a favor, okay, chorus, to someone else. It might be something tangible, like give money or food or something, material good. Or it could be intangible, give public acclaim or you know, authority, something like that. But the receiver of that gift was not in a place where they could return the favor. So the giver would give this favor, but then it was understood there was an obligation that at some point the receiver then would reciprocate and give something back of equal value. And that exchange came to be known as the reciprocity system. So what that meant was, is when I gave a favor to someone, it was not truly free in the context that we consider free now, but the receiver of that understood that at some point I'm going to return the favor with something of equal value. Now, Paul most likely knew about that. The believers in the Ephesus church probably knew about that. So if they understood that system, it might shed new light on verse 10 that we read. It's talking about grace and how free grace is, but then in verse 10 it says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. In other words, we're not saved by works. We're saved by a free gift of grace. But could it be that there is a reciprocity system in place where there's an obligation, there's an expectation that we are going to return that favor in living good works for Christ. In Jude 1.4, it says that some change the grace of God 
into a license for immorality. In other words, there were some people in that day saying, hey, I've received the grace of God so I can live any way I wanna live. I can do anything I wanna do. And Paul's saying that's not true. There is a reciprocity system in place. There is an expectation to return a favor to God. Now, here's the reality. I don't have anything of equal value to give back to God. (laughs) I don't have anything I can give him. But what I can do is say, God, everything I have is yours. Everything that I am, I give to you. Use me in any way you want to use me. I am completely yours. That's the reciprocity system. God has given us his free gift of grace. We in return say, I'm yours. That's reciprocation. So here's the choice that we have when it comes to grace. We can hold grace way out here or we can hold grace like this. Would you bow with me? There's a reason a song was written entitled Amazing Grace. (laughs) Because that's what grace is. It's amazing. I hope you've received that grace this morning. If you haven't, don't leave this morning without receiving that grace. I'd love to pray with you. Others would love to pray with you before you leave. If you have, embrace it. Well, understand what it is and walk in it and let it revolutionize how you live and how you see others. Father, we thank you for grace. I just pray that you would put in our spirit a depth of gratitude and a depth of awareness, a depth of appreciation for this free gift of grace that you've given. And may we walk in it and live in it and serve in it. Father, be with us now as we continue to worship you. Father, give us a heart and desire to sing our praise to you, to allow your spirit to minister to us this morning and do in us whatever you need to do, to speak into us whatever we need to hear. May we be submitted and surrendered to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, or to hear more messages, go to rfamarillo.org. Thanks. Have a great week.